we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Sot Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. Today is Saturday, June the 20th, and I'm your host, Ilan Martin. With me in the studio today is my host, Jason Greetings. And editor of .net, Sheen LaChance. Hello, everybody. And Carolyn McCallum. Hi, and welcome. We invite you to join in with your comments and thoughts. You can reach us here at 718-508-9499. That's seven. 718- Eight five zero eight and four nine nine. The title of today's show is Do Aliens Eat People? What's up with UFOs? This is a huge, complicated, multi-leveled, and rolling topic that easily take up more than one show to cover, and probably several. Let's do it. Let's do it. Starting today. Freeze. So, if you're familiar with this stuff, then I'm sure there'll be areas that you weren't covered, but uh, there will be some areas that will be new to you too. That's guaranteed. If you're not so familiar with the reality of UFOs and the actually serious question of whether aliens eat people or not, have an open mind, and this matter may be of interest to you. It is important stuff. Lastly, if you're 100% sure that there isn't and cannot be no way in hell, Terrestrial presence here on Earth already here. Already interact with humans on a probably be a waste of your time. Folks, because of its implications, this can be a scary topic. Uh, coming to accept um, what's being said here, at least as a somewhat strong possibility, requires some research, some dot connecting, and a little soul searching. Knowledge of this subject matter can be very protective, as we'll explain later in the show. So I guess the first area we might delve into is why all the secrecy and information and misdirection of the subject for so many years? Well, first, it looks like we're having a lot of choppy reception. So we're just going to try... Uh, Well, we're gonna let's just try plugging uh, in on something else. So just a minute, we're going to call into our show and see what we can do. Okay. Get a NASCAR sound guy to play a, a tune for us while we're switching over. That'd be great. Thank you. 
dark and cold And storm clouds fill the sky Close the window, turn down the lights Sit with me See if that works. Well, we've got a little bit of echo here on our side, so let me just see if I can fix that. Okay. Okay, so it looks like it's sounding good. I'm just going to see if we can... We're getting more echo. Let's see here. Okay. How's that? Oh, we still got an echo. I'm just going to one do one thing here. Okay. All right. How's that, everyone? Sound good? Sounding good. Well, it it looks as though we had a little um, alien interference with our connection, <laughs> possibly a transmission, uh, maybe some government agents screwing with our internet connection. Of course, I'm only half kidding. Um, but in case that little intro was missed, and I understand it was a little choppy, let me just repeat a few things, because uh, this is a big topic. Um, the title of today's show being, Do Aliens Eat People? What's Up With UFOs? I think the the correct way to phrase that is, do aliens eat people? What's up with UFOs? <laughs> and if case, in case you've ever had that question, uh, we're going to attempt to answer it today with the best information known to man, or so we think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big topic. Uh, if there's uh, some areas that you're already familiar with that aren't covered, uh, just know it's impossible to cover everything. Uh, but for sure, we're going to be covering areas that um, most probably you've never heard before. Uh, if you're not so familiar with the reality of UFOs and the serious question of whether aliens eat people or not, and you have an open mind, then the subject matter may be of great interest to you. It is important stuff. 
Lastly, if you're 100% sure that there isn't and cannot be no way in hell an alien or extraterrestrial presence here on Earth already here, already interacting with humans on a planetary level, then listening in will probably be a waste of your time. Because of the implications of what we're discussing today, it can be a pretty scary topic. Uh, coming to accept what's being said, at least as a somewhat strong possibility, requires some research, dot connecting, and a little soul searching. But the reason we're doing it is because knowledge of the subject matter can be very protective, as we'll explain later on in the show. So I guess the first area that we might get into is why all the secrecy and disinformation and misdirection about this subject for so many years? How is it that such a huge uh, and important thing as ETs being here already uh, can be concealed from us. There was an article on SOT.net about a week and a half ago. It was called Fermi's Phony Paradox, Humans Too Arrogant and Stupid to Solve Missing Aliens Question. And uh, basically it begins with the idea that official denial concerning the subject matter of UFOs and, and what they really are has begun some time ago. There was the Condon Committee Uh, out of the University of Colorado, a UFO project funded by the United States Air Force from 1966 to 1968. And they got together to study unidentified flying objects under the direction of physicist Edward Condon. The result of its work, formally titled Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects and known as the Condon Report, appeared in 1968. After examining hundreds of UFO files from the Air Force's Project Blue Book and from the Civilian UFO Group's National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, and Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, and investigating sightings reported during the life of the project, the committee produced a final report that said the study of UFOs was unlikely to yield major scientific discoveries. The report's conclusions were generally welcomed by the scientific community and have been cited as a decisive factor in the generally low level of interest in UFO activity among academics since that time. According to British astrophysicist Peter Sterak, a principal critic of the report, it is, quote, the most influential public document concerning the scientific status of this UFO problem. Hence, all current work on the UFO problem must make reference to the Condon Report. And I know from uh, from things we've heard from Richard Dolan, the historian who is author of UFOs in the National Security State, when he was in university studying Cold War history, uh, he found there was no way he could legitimately broach the subject of UFOs with his mentor. Uh, to give but one example of of how this thinking has trickled down. Well, the Condon report is kind of funny because Condon himself, he wrote the conclusion, uh, which is, I I believe in the book format, it's basically like the introduction to the book where he lays out all the conclusions. And most people would only read that part of the book because the rest is just some, you know, boring statistical analyses and, um, you know, analyzing trajectories and, a bunch of technical data, but if you actually read the 
the actual studies by the scientists that were working on it. You see that the conclusions that Condon gave don't match up with the data that's actually in the study. Well, he did an excellent job of priming the reader. Yeah. Off the hop and <clears throat> so if you actually read the, if you actually read it, you find all these cases that are labeled as unidentified and that they can have, that there's no explanation for for them that could be found by the the actual scientists looking into the cases. So if you actually read the Condon report, it supports the the idea that some of these cases are inexplicable in terms of the explanations offered by scientists at these, at that time and before that time and after that time. Condon just pretty much made up his conclusions because that's what he wanted to do or that's what he was being asked to do yeah. because there's a lot of controversy even around the Condon report and some leaked memos that came out basically. Condon was kind of like the, the George Bush of of this, this of this study, basically, um, you know, catapulting the the propaganda and making the making the facts fit what they want them to say, and really, it was just total whitewash. You could look on it as a betrayal of science. I mean, even if there was only, I think it was a very small percentage, nine or ten percent, that were truly unexplained. But you know, any real scientist with a real questing spirit would want to look at those, would want to say, okay, this doesn't fit any of our, you know, it doesn't fit any of the possible explanations and, and this needs to be looked at. But either they were agreeable to going along with Condon or they just were warned off, you know, because there are people who have tried to look into it and bad things seem to happen to them. Well, I think it was, was it Dr. Alan Hynek who was also part of the committee? Who, he wasn't on Condon. He was on, with Project Blue Book. Blue Book. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he may have had a, an initially kind of a when he was working on Blue Book, uh, kind of towing the party line as well, and then later came out with his own organizations and and got further in the top and later said, "Wait a second, there is something to this." Mm -hmm. So uh, quite a different example there in the person of. Uh, Alan Heineck. Mm -hmm. I guess we should talk about what we like. What is a UFO? Like, what's going on? What are the things that these people are are were studying for the Condon report? Because the phenomenon really took off in the late 40s with you know sightings of so-called flying saucers. But ever since then, the the phenomenon has stayed the same in certain ways and changed in certain ways and. I think for people who haven't looked into it or who haven't seen a UFO themselves, they might have a um, an inac inaccurate idea of what a UFO sighting is or could be. It's not so much looking up in the sky and seeing a streaking light and being like, "Oh, well, what was that?" or um, you know, just seeing some some bright flashing light. You know, those are, those are UFO reports because they're unidentified at the time, but when you actually look at the cases and read some of the studies about the cases, it turns out that the first of all, the more detailed the report, and uh, the more detailed the report, the, the harder it is to explain. So, looking at you know having a report of someone just looking up in the sky, that's not very good data, and m most scientists would reject it or come up with a reasonable explanation for it logically. It could, it's probably just a meteorite or a satellite. Swamp gas and Venus. <laughs> well, yeah, because some people, well, 
you look in the sky and sometimes it's easy to mistake something like that. It's understandable. Mm-hmm. But the cases that are unexplained are the truly weird ones where the the witnesses are first of all credible because most they they've done again studies on these on the witnesses themselves and found them to be totally normal credible people. A lot of them, um, a lot of the cases will involve, say, uh, law enforcement officers or military people who are trained observers. Mm-hmm. That should give them a bit more weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John Keel, he uh, he was looking into the types of people who you know either see um, UFOs or you know have have some type of uh, uh, experience. And uh, actually, policemen were you know among the top. Um, you know, who, who did see these things, as, as well as uh, people who had strange last names, and um, he, he had a whole uh, category uh, that that was pretty interesting to kind of check out. But some of the some of the phenomena that are seen might be, if it is just a light in the sky, a light taking a what looks to be a very intentional path and turning or going at great speeds and turning at right angles or stopping on a dime. Or um, getting big really fast and then then shrinking and disappearing. Or possibly splitting into several lights. Yeah, and and that's just that's just a light phenomenon. Then if there if the UFO is actually observed close from a close um, perspective or just you know it can be from ten yards away, it actually looks like a flying saucer. It's not like like the idea just came from Hollywood or cheap B movies. These are the things that people have actually seen and have seen for many, many years. You know, you'll see descriptions of the texture of the skin of the ship, numbers of windows, colors mm-hmm. described, of uh, varying shapes. People will make very, very detailed drawings, and the shapes are, you know, there's quite a variety of them, but people will come up with Details that, you know, you could argue at this day and age with all the sci-fi we've been inundated with could have been drawn from memory, but there are pictures from the 50s and 40s that do show these, this incredible amount of detail. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that uh, a lot of these UFOs uh, don't uh, meet the expectations that we're um, led to expect uh, when we see strange things in the sky. They might be soundless or they might uh, emit colors that uh, that we don't expect to see from an airplane, or there might be a certain level of transparency or invisibility that they go into. Uh, so the difficulty in determining a lot of whether or not these objects in the sky are, are real in some sense is, you know, we're applying our own, uh, our own standards of perception, our own understanding of, of physics, and for the average person that's really limited. Limiting. Well, there's, there's an interesting thing if, if we want to backtrack a little bit from the modern era of UFOs. Um, there are people who've read into the Bible as one great giant sightings uh, history, but uh, John Keel wrote a really interesting book called Operation Trojan Horse, and he goes back into historical sightings and he starts around 1897 and he went and collected newspaper clippings from all over. The country and all over the world and the really interesting thing seems to be that whether it is shaped by our expectations or shaped by possible other intentions the sightings seem to match the culture they're in so in the in the 1890s all over the states the idea of something that could be a floating balloon 
could work. So you have all kinds of cigar-shaped UFOs being found, uh, being observed, people reporting them landing, and, and, you know, very affable Victorian types getting out of there and asking for three buckets of water for flu, you know, for fuel. Um, uh, well, he also goes into this whole thing about the shaping of the perception of the UFO flop. I really recommend the book. But skip forward to 1934, and he collected a whole series of what were called ghost ship sightings in in the Scandinavian countries. And in this case, these sightings were ships, airplanes that resembled an existing airplane, except they were flying in weather that they should never be able to fly in. They were much bigger. They had eight propellers when I think, you know, two, maybe four was the max. So it's interesting to see how you could argue that the phenomenon shapes itself to our perceptions, but perhaps our perceptions are being shaped. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting aspect of it. Well, I thought we'd, I thought we'd talk a little bit about... Um cognitive dissonance for just a moment because um you know with with the large numbers of sightings let's say 90 percent of them are explainable uh in 3d terms in in terms that we understand uh be it satellites or or airplanes or or other things let's say it's only 10 percent there's still that's still very significant because of the huge numbers of of things that are observed by people around the world um, so you have this idea that, you know, there is this reality to it. Uh, I, I, I don't know of anyone who hasn't seen or doesn't know of someone who's seen a UFO. And, um, I think there is this, uh, denial. Uh, it's such a huge, it's got such huge implications, beatings from other worlds here, uh, that, um, many people um, feel compelled to deny uh, because it would open up a whole series of other questions to them that they're just not prepared to consider. Um, and that's what our society and culture and, and media and education all kind of propagate in a way, even though ETs, uh, UFOs, aliens, um, are pervaded uh, in you know in our culture in our in our sci-fi literature. Uh, it's like it's in front of your nose and and yet it isn't. And I think this has created a kind of schizophrenia, if you will, among many people who have no kind of um, rational way to understand uh, what it is that that we've been experiencing. You can even get an idea for that by just looking how the field of ufology itself has progressed over the years. So even among the people who seemingly are open to the idea, when you, when you started out, like when, the, when the, the research and collecting of data and that sort of stuff happened in the late, started in the late 40s and continued on, you had all these organizations starting. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the early organizations, they tended to only record um, certain types of accounts. So they'd stick to the, the the lights in the skies and maybe the, the 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 sightings from off to a distance, but when you came to to report report or accounts of people being very close to a UFO and seeing an actual so-called UFO occupant, 
that was kind of like, okay, well, that's kind of going too far. I can buy the UFO thing, but, you know, little strange little creatures coming out of them, that's just kind of too far. So those reports didn't even get published for years. And the the, the Lorenzans, Jim and Coral, who were um, the ones responsible for APRO, they were some of the first to, re- to release books of these sorts of sightings. And they were going on all over the place, the U.S., France. France had a big number of of these uh, occupant sightings. And so that's kind of how it, how it's progressed. And then in the we didn't hear really about the the extent of the so-called abduction phenomenon until the late 70s early 80s with Bud Hopkins work and Whitley Stryber's book. But um that stuff has been going on for years and John Keel talks about that. He talks about how when those books started to, to come out he he was like, well, I've been researching that stuff since I started in the early 60s. And, of course, there was the Betty and Barney Hill case, mm-hmm. the famous abduction case. But there really weren't any other cases, um, like kind of popular, um, well-known cases like that. that came, there were just a few that resembled this, the abduction routine you know, phenomenon from that we learned about later on. And the, the debunking attempts on them were prodigious. Mm-hmm. Because there were so few, there could be a lot of resources focused on, on discrediting them. But then, like, you read John Keel's books, and he says he's, uh, he's been, he was looking at this, at these phenomena for years and seeing all of this stuff years before it was ever made public. This stuff was still going on. There was a pattern and no one was really talking about it. So, well, it looks like we've got a call. Let's just, we're going to talk to Kent from West Virginia. So, Kent, are you there? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm uh, pretty good. I've got a are you there, very, Kent? very interesting. Yeah, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Just wait. Let me Hello? Try one. Hello? Kent, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Uh-oh, I can hear can't you. Hear you. Oh, just give me one sec. I think there might be a problem on our end. So let me take a sec to see if I can fix that. In our musical interlude. <laughs> Okay, Kent, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay, we can hear you now. Sorry about that. We had our volume turned down, but I, but everyone else could hear you, I think. Yeah. So can uh, you say that right. again just for our benefit? Yeah, I'm here. Um, I've got a very, very interesting UFO um, story. Um, sure, yeah, let's hear it. Uh, well, it has to do – I was listening to somebody on the radio uh, about – Two weeks ago, I guess, and he was—he's uh, of the same mindset as myself and uh, you, you folks on the other end of the phone here, you know about JFK 9/11. You know, he, and he was having a discussion of just as you would have, and um, at one point he blurted out that he was lying on a beach down in Florida, and all of a sudden there was this huge, translucent, white, beautiful mothership of a UFO that just popped up and appeared and like 10 seconds later it was gone and he swore down it was a, it was a UFO 
Now, it just so happened that, believe it or not, about two days before that, I had been looking through a website called cloudappreciationsociety.org. And I'm not debunking, I'm not disputing that there possibly could be UFOs, but I'm going to tell you a story about how misconceptions take place. In any way, there's a picture there of what's called a classic lenticular um, cloud over a monastery in Escorial, Madrid, Spain. And I'm telling you, it just looks like a big, translucent, glowing, white, round, round mm-hmm. cloud. And I called the guy on the on the it was calling like this, and I called in and says, he said, you know, that was a cloud possibly, you know, because I just saw this and he swore up and down, no way, and he went, that's the mothership, and um, and I actually sent him the copy of the picture, and I corresponded with the Cloud Appreciation Society because of some technical problems, and and the people at the Cloud Appreciation Society just sent me a comment and said, good luck trying to convince these ufologists. You know, and uh, so I sent this guy this picture, and he says, no, there's no way that's a cloud. I know what I saw. And although the cloud actually, actually, the description that came out of his mouth actually describes the cloud, he refuses to believe that it's a cloud. So there's an instance where I can send you, do you have any, I'd like to send you this. You can send it to, yeah, you can send it to sot at sot.net. Yeah, we're always up for more information, so thank you. S O T T dot net. That's right. Yeah, and I'll I'll, um, I'll include the um, I'll dig out the archives of the comments they made, and I'm not trying to say that you know that I'm not trying to dis, dis, dismiss anything. I'm just trying to say this is an amazing instance where this guy thought he saw mm-hmm. a cl- he saw a cloud. Because he said he said it disappeared like within nine or ten seconds, hmm. and well, he says there's no way a cloud could disappear. Well, a cloud is just vapor. A cloud can come and go, but you know unless the thing was like uh, traveling at light speed, you know what I'm saying. If it was traveling at the light speed and it could disappear from here to beyond the horizon, you know, and a, a million miles away within a split second, it was a cloud. But yet this guy who who knows everything about everything. You know, and quite he's, he's quite on top of most things, you know. But he's warping down that he saw a UFO, and uh, there's no convincing him otherwise. So it's kind of an interesting little story. Yeah, I'll send this to you. S-SOT at SOT.net. That's it. Yeah. That's an interesting story, Kent. Yeah, and yeah, I think, yeah. Um, I think points to why it's so important not to jump to conclusions, um, because there are many strange things uh, that can be viewed. I've seen pictures of those clouds before, and... And they do look a heck of a lot like they might be, you know, strange uh, cloud-like UFOs or, or UFOs that might be cloaked in clouds. And yeah. there's really very little way of assessing it. Yeah, and he said actually it actually had like a vapor trail behind it. And now I'm looking I'm looking at the picture as it stands now, and there's actually a very faint shading off to one side to where it's a little moisture, you know, and. Uh, could be construed as a vapor trail, although it's probably it probably is a vapor of the cloud. There's maybe the cloud, you know, moving along the wind. So, so yeah. I just when you were talking about, it, I just I'll send you I'll, I'll dig out the send you all the details, and I think you'll have enjoyed it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Kent, was there okay. was there anything else that he uh, experienced during the uh, his his sighting? Like did other people see the cloud or UFO as well, or 
Was he by himself? Uh, did he have any experiences yeah. before or after? Yeah, he was with he was with um, his girlfriend and his her parents or something, and they all saw it. And uh, then he said he went and he talked to somebody who he knew who was into UFOs, a photographer or something, and they posed, they contacted some website and uh, described it into you know put it into the into the system you know in the, as a description of what he'd seen and, and sort of you know he never got any further from that you know but uh, he did you know he had there were other people that saw it and he did you know he advanced it through the uh, UFO information systems in some fashion so yeah it's it's all on archives I'll find I'll find the, his commentary in the archives and I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, thanks, Ken. All right, talk to you later. Thanks. All right, bye bye. Thanks for the call. Thanks for listening. I think that Kent makes a, a good point. Because we've talked about scientists being kind of crazy and totally rejecting everything. But at the same time, there are it is pretty common. It's human nature to, to latch on to an idea and to not be open to revising it and reinterpreting it. So in a case like that, it could very well have been a cloud. And, I mean, it's, like I said, it can be very easy for some people to, to latch on to an idea and, and stick with it and be adamant that they saw a UFO and they didn't. On the other hand, it, go, it can go the other way too. And so that's why I think that science in general and ufology in particular has to just strive to be as objective as possible without any preconceived ideas. Because if you've got a preconceived idea that something is a, quote, UFO, meaning some kind of alien mothership, then right there your objectivity is shot out the window because it may not be. And But the same goes for everything else, where if someone sees something that looks like a cloud and is sure it's a cloud and sure it's not a UFO, it may very well be a UFO. Because there are sightings and accounts of uh, what appear to be, like you mentioned, Elon, like cloaked UFOs, cloaked as clouds, where a person will see a metallic UFO and then a cloud will form around it, and then they'll just see the cloud, or vice versa. So the phenomena, the phenomena are very, um, very complex, and it's not as simple as just one or the other, black or white. And uh, right before Ken called, we were talking a little bit about Keel. And, you know, I think uh, the UFO community is still catching up to him. And one of the things that he, you know, put a lot of attention into was the investigations uh, into sightings. And, you know, having really thorough interviews with with people who had, you know, these sightings. Because, like you said earlier, Harrison, it's uh, these sightings aren't usually just, um, you know, seeing something in the sky. There's a lot of other things that can potentially be happening uh, sometimes they're before the sighting and after the sighting. Uh, you know, there could be odd, odd occurrences, um, lost time, uh, trances, hallucinations, um, you know, a whole host of, of different types of, of events that are you it's big into mm -hmm. to, to see, you know, what could be surrounding the event as well. There can be illnesses. Uh, often, if somebody, especially if they've been fairly close to what they think they've seen, they'll exhibit uh, uh, symptoms of radiation poisoning, mm -hmm. sunburn, mm -hmm. problems with their eyesight, illnesses, or great, great fatigue. One of the interesting stories that uh, that Keel told was um, 
there was one one story of a sighting and uh, a father he had uh, this Polaroid camera um, or no it was a one of the old uh, eight millimeter uh, types of cameras and uh, he earlier in the day uh, he was with his son and he was taking pictures of the sun on his bicycle and you know the trees and uh, this different sequence of events and he captured uh, this UFO on it and then also had photos of later uh, points in the day or or week and when he got the uh, photos uh, they were out of sequence so like the UFO was before they can was kind of there's uh, this this is a, a semi-common phenomenon in uh, these these types of stories where there's these time lapses or these differences in, in time. Well, there's a good book on the the time aspect for UFOs by Mark Davenport. I believe his name is. Uh, let's check the title. I think it's called something like Visitors from Space. I'll look it up right now. Well, another interesting thing that Kiel observes is that uh, UFOs have a kind of pattern of appearing uh, at certain time. Um, During the equinoxes and... Yes. So this way, the book's called Visit the Crew of the UFOs, except for the last chapter. I'll just say that. Does it posit that uh, that the ETs are from another time? Yeah, he gets into yeah. He looks at pretty much all the main features and characteristics of UFO sightings and gets into abductee stuff. And then the last chapter is his conclusion. So it's all leading up to this kind of time travel thing. But he ends up thinking that it's time cops. <laughs> Isn't that a movie? Yeah. So, like, so, so basically, you know, time traveling police force from the future that's, that's coming back and they're doing a crappy job. Yeah. Um, but but everything that leads up to that is, is really interesting. The way he goes through and 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 looks at. Oh, it's been years since I read it, but um, it's it's pretty it's pretty fun read just to see how he puts everything together from from all the disparate pieces of evidence that come from just the odd things. So he'll just it might be like Kiel talks about UFOs kind of cycling through light spectrum or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the the term abduction has come up already a couple of times in the conversation, and um, I guess you know on the on the kind of surface level, we all know what an abduction is. It's it's when one party um, forcibly takes. Uh, and removes a person from the environment, their chosen environment, uh, and brings them with them somewhere else against their will. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, as the case is, there is all too much, all too many accounts uh, in UFO literature and alien abduction literature of, of folks who've experienced um an abduction or or a removal from their home or uh, the environment that they were in, be it in the woods or uh, driving in a car somewhere. Um, whereas Shane mentioned earlier, uh, you know, exper- uh, they've experienced missing time. Uh, they were there, you know, in a certain given place for you know at a certain time, 
and then found themselves somewhere else or back where they were with no account for the two or three or six hours uh, that they were at least not aware of being there. Um, so uh, this is a pretty serious matter. Um, we have uh, people who have been speaking to Dr. David Jacobs, um, as he's discussed in his work, the threat. Uh, we have Carla Turner in her books, uh, Taken into the Fringe. Um, Masquerade of Angels. Masquerade of Angels. Uh, and the work of uh, Laura Knight Yachik uh, and High Strangeness. Um, there are two recent books, too. Most, most of the kind of classic abduction literature comes from the 80s or the 90s, and, but there have been a couple pretty good books published in the last few years. Um, Kathleen Martin, who is actually the, the niece, I believe, I believe niece of, of Betty Hill, and she's written two books. One with Stanton Friedman, um, what's considered nowadays the definitive book on the Betty and Barney Hill case. I can't remember the name of it. It might be called Abducted. No, no. Well, I'll double check that. And then another, another one, um, yeah, the Alien Abduction Files, I believe, with Denise Stoner. And so these, are, these include some very recent cases along with, uh, well, um, so current cases and cases from, from these same abductees from years ago. Interesting stuff that just shows that this kind of thing is still going on. And she also goes in some interesting directions, um, getting into the, the more paranormal aspects of the abduction experience. So examples of ESP or PK. And she's really one of the first abduction researchers to actually um, look at this and say, you know, Say it like it is, and uh, in the books themselves, she doesn't really go too far, but uh, but you can see that she's get going in that direction. So I think that there's that's an interesting development there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly been a while since we've had uh, new material or uh, analyses of uh, of what's been going on. Um, so there there is a, a nuts and bolts element to it. There seems, uh, you know, if you consider the fact that we're we're not you know, that human beings are physical, but also have other types of bodies. Uh, you know, in esoteric literature, we you know, read discussions of etheric bodies, astral bodies, or just subtler bodies. Um, you know, is it, is it something about our subtler bodies that, that the ETs are interested in? Um, is, is that one way that they have been um interacting with us and if so for what and uh we have a lot of uh interesting information pointing to what they may be actually doing um well uh listeners might be are probably familiar with uh the um the scale uh the Heimlich scale and Heineck, the yeah, Heineck scale that uh that had the different types of encounters <clears throat> Um, you know, close encounter of a first kind, second kind, third kind, and so on. Um, but Keel, uh, he had different types of contactees, and it's in, it's always interesting to read his work because he he doesn't just go into uh, UFOs as we commonly think about it. He does bring in you know those, those type of astral uh, ideas, and 
one one of the types of his contactees is people who uh, might do some sort of astral projection and might be visited by you know some sort of guide, and so he considers that like as a as a um, uh, some type of encounter, and you know that doesn't really flow or mesh with you know a lot of the um, you know so-called modern UFO UFO mm-hmm. way of thinking, mm-hmm. but. You know, it adds that element because that that does exist. And when you look at you know a lot of these uh, uh, abduction uh, experiences, you, there are stories of people uh, being pulled through walls and uh, being abducted, not in their physical body, but in you know this other more uh, etheric mm-hmm. type body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just helpful to consider that you know if if you you know. If you've heard about UFO sightings, for instance, and how they can seemingly disappear, uh, they do have some kind of technology, I think it can be safely assumed, uh, that allows them to traverse dimensions, uh, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. So if they're interacting with people, uh, then maybe they have the technology to... um, appropriate their technology and use it to change our physicality or just as we were saying, but I think there are any number of possibilities. Well, another possibility, if you, if you, if we look at the kind of debunking possibilities, what do people say about abductions? Well, they might, must just be fantasies or hallucinations uh, or hoaxes or hoaxes. Mm-hmm. Again, um, we could pretty much rule out hoaxes in vast number of these cases. Same with mental illness. Of course, it just depends on how you define mental illness. But well, the thing is, these people, you know, when when they come out of these things, they're desperately trying to keep their lives together. Many, many of them don't even want to talk about it because it's so distressing to them and all they want to do is get get themselves back to where they were before and in one way or another they have been irrevocably changed and and mostly for the world and and i kind of think that speaks to you know, they have experienced some level of trauma that um that's real as though something did happen and it, you know the, the confusion, however, makes them, you know, inarticulate. And you know, how do they explain their experience to most people who have no awareness of it? Uh, so that's part of the problem right there. And again, we get back to the the example, something like what Kent mentioned. What we can say for cert for a certainty, I think, in the vast majority of these cases, is that something has happened. Now we don't know necessarily what happened. But you'll get a lot of abductees who are absolutely certain they know what was what happened. Mm-hmm. So they're certain that they were taken to Venus or Mars, like in the early contactee cases, or some other galaxy or dimension, or that this physical UFO came down and and um, you know the aliens came into the room and picked them up and took them out. And there's they know what they experienced, and so this is how it happened. But there we get into a whole other area of possible deception and misinterpretation and just an area where it becomes very important to to under, to be aware of 
as many of the possibilities as possible. And this, of course, means um, a knowledge of probably science that we have no idea about and about human nature and the mind and consciousness. I was going to say, and if, and if somebody is willing to put themselves into a research situation, uh, hip, hip, this is where hypnotherapy is used a lot, and then you are sort of at the mercy of the quality of the person conducting the session. Uh, it's very important that they keep their objectivity. Um, some people get so excited they start leading a person, and and it can be a, a really fruitful way of looking at these things, but it can also create a lot of confusion and a lot of misinformation. Um, this is, you know, going back, you mentioned Carla Turner. She was a brilliant investigator this way in that she would... Um, she created immense checklists. She did a wonderful book called Taken, where she looked into eight different women and did hypnotherapy sessions with all of them, got as much information as she could, but she was as careful as she could not to lead, not to add anything into the stories that these people told. And also she was very, very <clears throat> relentless in trying to get past what would have been come to be called screen memories. And screen memory is the initial story. I was taken out of my room. I went into a ship. I went to visit Venus. Well, I saw a creepy owl. I saw creepy owls. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are skilled and have experience with these sort of things, you can get past those memories. And often they are hiding much more disturbing experiences. Well, there's a, even a deeper layer to that. Okay. And... Uh, this comes about when you look at, there are several well-known abduction researchers, like there's Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, several others, Richard Boylan. And when you look at these different researchers, even if, even if their methodologies look valid and, and, uh, and good and like they don't ask too many leading questions, you, you see a certain pattern emerge in each, for each of these specific researchers. So they'll each just tend to find all of these details that come up in case after case, um, some of which are, are also found by other researchers, but some of which are totally different. So you'll have the, Dave, the David Jacobs abduction scenario, and you'll have the Bud Hopkins abduction scenario. So it makes me wonder, uh, well, it brings, back, brings me back to something I'm pretty sure we talked about it on a previous show, the I think it was the one on parapsychology and the experimenter effect. So this is when you, that you find in just ordinary, regular scientific research where you're doing a study and you tend to get the you might tend to get the effect that you were looking for. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of this unexplained thing, kind of like the placebo effect. But one of the, one possible explanation for it is ESP and PK, is parapsychology. So there may be in these scientific uh, studies uh, uh, a PK aspect where the experimenter is actually paranormally influencing the outcome of the experiment, and so even if they are very careful about care, very careful about all their other controls, the results are skewed in the sense that it's not the effect that they're looking for; they're actually getting an effect from from themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, so even if a, if an abduction researcher is totally methodical and careful, it if we consider the phenomenon that they are investigating, which at least hypothetically is dealing with a, an intentional um, group of, of beings of whatever sort with their own agendas and with their own intentions, there, there are two possibilities there. Well, at least two. One is that 
that these researchers are in fact influencing their, their, uh, the people that come to them in paranormal ways or that the, the so-called aliens themselves are influencing the, the subjects, the abductees, the contactees in ways to give certain bits of information to these various researchers. Mm -hmm. And then when you compare, when someone external to that compares all the data from these different research, researchers, you say, oh, look, there's contradictions here, and look, the, this guy only gets this, and this guy doesn't get that at all, and it's just a total mess. <laughs> and so everyone looks at that and says, okay, well, it's a total mess, therefore there must, you know, there, there must not be a fire. It's all smoke. And, and to add to that mess, too, then you have the, you know, the disinfo and you know the, the types of you know government experiments mm -hmm. and that, uh, that, that can continue. Yeah, that that just makes a, a complete you know uh, can of worms. Well, here's the thing. I mean, like in uh, the book you mentioned, Carolyn uh, Taken, where um, Carla Turner interviews these eight women and and their abduction experiences for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, several of them have had interactions with the military. Oh yeah. Uh, and being warned off about working with her. And being warned off, but but concerning the, the whole experience of abduction, uh, there have also been you know recollections of the military working with ETs, or the abduction being only military. Mm -hmm. um, so that opens up a whole other can of worms. Uh, does the military have the same um, technology as ETs in, in being able to abduct people? Is it different? Uh, are they are they doing it just to obscure the information that may come of the research under hypnosis mm -hmm. uh, of of the legitimate um, authentic abductions committed by malevolent aliens? Actually, Carla Turner mentions one one potential reason: um, militaries are abducting abductees to find out about the aliens. You know, which is, mm -hmm. is kind of a spy versus spy kind of thing. Well, there's a just as a an aside, there's a great X-Files episode called Jose Chung's From Outer Space. And it was from uh, season three. And it's it's probably the best representation of just the confusion around this subject that I've seen. I just watched it recently. And it, it it's hilarious, but well done at the same time. I'll just say that it involves an alien abduction and then an abduction of the aliens who did the alien abduction, as well as military abductions, and uh, it's just, it's just a riot. So check it out. <laughs> the truth is out there. Yeah, but it's not easy. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Well, speaking of uh, military and intelligence agencies, um, we've got our second commercial, um, and. Uh, I suppose we should just play it and get it done with, Harrison. Yeah, we really don't like taking uh, paid ads, but sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Where's that darn file for my report? I know it's on my laptop somewhere. I can't find that old Facebook post anywhere. Honey, how could you delete our honeymoon pictures from your phone? Does this sound like you? If you've ever had your hard drive crash and lost everything because you forgot to back it up, or found yourself frustrated after searching for hours for that perfect selfie you posted on Facebook a few years ago, well, worry no more. We can help. The new NSA. That's right. The NSA is now offering full data recovery services for all your data, including texts, email, phone conversations, and more. Had an important business conversation a few months ago but lost your notes containing critical details? No problem. 
accidentally deleted the secret folder of emails from your mistress and want them back? We've got it covered. Can't find your car keys? We know where they are. In fact, you'd be surprised what we have on file. And because you're a patriotic, dutiful taxpayer, this service is offered for free. That's right, free. There's no need to call. We're always listening. Simply pick up your receiver and say the words, NSA data, I need you. Or simply include those words in any phone, email, or personal conversation. Our teams of technicians are manning the desks 24-7, monitoring your conversations and tracking your every movement in order to provide the most responsive, comprehensive customer service possible. We're ready to help. This ain't your grandpa's NSA. If you act now, as an extra exclusive bonus, we'll throw in a complimentary personal horoscope. Yep, thanks to our innovative team, the new NSA is now offering state-of-the-art horoscope services. Want to know what your next career will be? Wondering if you'll meet that special someone in the near future? Anxious about whether you'll receive that raise from the boss? Worried about the future state of your health? That's right. We've been tracking your online browsing habits, favorite movies, musical preferences, sleeping patterns, medical history, and more. For a reason. The new NSA. You wouldn't believe what we have on you. Now partnered with IBM, Apple, Sprint, Verizon, AT&T, Google, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. Also available to foreign leaders, ambassadors, and citizens for a small fee. We've got your data, too. Well, that was surprisingly candid. It was. Well, well NSA. NSA. Grandfather's NSA. What a bunch of guys. They're looking out for for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm glad. I mean, how can you provide the best customer service if you're not constantly alert and aware? Yeah, alert and aware, listening to all your conversations. Well, I, I'm just I'm just grateful that now I've got that service. So, I mean, there have been times where I've lost all my data or crucial bits of information from past conversations that I've forgotten. I really wanted them back. But, you, I mean, you look back and it's like losing your old photos. Where are they? Well, the NSA's got them. Yes, my old 98 hard drive in my tower. I mean, yeah. that thing died, and there was all kinds of stuff I wish yeah. I still had. Well, NSA data, I need you. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this, this, this topic, um, you know, we were talking about just the disinformation uh, perpetrated by you know these uh, government agencies. You know, it, it gets it gets so uh, deep and, and complicated, as we were saying earlier. And I remember when I was first digging into the subject um, of and you know, getting to know all the names, and I was like so paranoid that everybody in the UFO field were you know some, some kind of agent. And uh, you know I can see I could see how you know people can kind of lose their minds a little bit, um, but. In in reality, um, the when when I was digging into this, uh, there was a uh, one of the first cases I really dug into was the Paul Benowitz case, and you know it's really uh, it's it's really sad story. Um, he was a, a electric electronic physicist, and he owned a you know he he was the CEO of a, of a large company who. Uh, created these instruments for like the NSA and, and the Air, Air Force. Uh, he's living in New Mexico and a really uh, intelligent guy. Uh, some people you know considered him a genius, and uh, he uh, he was seeing these uh, flying you know these these bright lights that were kind of dancing uh, around each other in, in the in the sky near 
one of the uh, Air Force uh, base uh, storage units. And what time was this? What time this, was frame? Se- this was 79, uh, 1979. I, I think his first um, viewing was uh, like in around 78. And um, he, he began recording, uh, you know, this, uh, what he was seeing. He, he was this uh, physicist, so he had all the equipment. Um, so he was like, you know, trying to um, record any kind of sounds, messages, uh, that sort of thing. And eventually he went to the Air Force and said, you know, this is what I got. And, you know, you want to take a look. And uh, he met with, you know, some of the top brass. And they, uh, on the surface, they appeared to take him seriously. Um, they assigned him uh, a special agent, uh, Richard Doty, um, uh, listeners might be familiar with him. He's he's been outed at this point as you know one of the uh, big sources of disinformation uh, in the UFO community, and so he was his he was uh, uh, Benowitz's like handler, so to speak, and you know he he would give him this false information, saying, yeah, you know you're on the right track. Uh, their story was that he was filming um, you know, these, these secret, top secret uh, projects that that the government was uh, was doing, and and they wanted to kind of distract him and you know take him on this um, this journey of you know believing in UFOs. And but what what happened afterwards was you know it was just like just devastating to the man. Um, the the NSA, they set up shop, you know, uh, kind of across the street, and they were beaming him uh, these messages, and you know these most look like nonsensical uh, streams of, of of data, and you know that would kind of contain little uh, tidbits of information here and there. So Shane, when you say beaming him, um, how would you describe that? Uh, they had uh, they had some type of you know, equipment that would be able to send um, messages where he was able to receive them. So he might have had like some type of short wave uh, radio uh, that. So, so he would hear messages in his brain, in his mind. Well, his that that was well. There was there was uh, I think several different components. Um, the the one that the agencies admit to is sending these messages via shortwave and or however they sent it and uh and he would receive it and you know jot it down and um or it, it might have been like through through computer equipment I'm not I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And but I I don't think it it stopped there. Um the the image that you know, people have of the crazed conspiracy theory with a tinfoil hat uh, that kind of comes from uh, Paul Benowitz. He he was literally driven insane. He had a to to the point of mental breakdown um, and had to be institutionalized for for some years. And um, but during during this time, like he was he was putting himself in the car, uh, wrapping it with tinfoil just to try to get away from uh, from these from this intensity that you know, he was he was constantly under. Um, and when you can you can see uh, interviews with uh, Richard Doty talking about you know what was going on and and this this guy is just like it's just a, a deplorable and really despicable attitude 
because uh, you know he's practically laughing about what was done to this man. Uh, you know, the, well, you made him believe in UFOs and and all these other things, and um, you just they broke they broke him down completely. Um, so it's it's not it's not necessarily uh, the the case isn't known um, just for what he captured, but what happened to him. Um, that you know is, is uh, a, a big donor. It's it's it was a, I think an important thing that you know was um, brought to light in the UFO community, um, and, and it just goes to show just the uh, what they you know what the these agencies would do to a person. A good book on that uh, was by Greg Bishop. Uh, was it called? Um, Project Omega, I um, Yeah, Project... Uh, the Omega... Oh, let me look that up again. Well, the thing is, you've got to wonder if they're expending this kind of effort on this person, what is there to hide? I mean, if it's just to... This, it seems to be a lot of work to just to go discredit somebody unless his credibility was so high that they had to go to that kind of effort. Project Beta. Beta. <clears throat> well... Just on the subject of agents and handlers, I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about regularly on the show is very relevant here. For example, the phenomenon of the, of FBI in domestic terrorism, just the the ubiquity of all the terrorists that show up in the news and mainstream media who just happen to have intelligence connections. Um, former run-ins with either um, federal organizations like the FBI or CIA or its equivalent in other countries, MI5, etc., MI6. And so when we look at the details of what happens to these young kids often and the way they are brought into the, the whole Islamic terrorism thing by government agents, it really gives some context for for the kind of thing that can go on and probably does go on, well, we know it goes on in the UFO field, just the breaking down of people and the just the overt coercion and mind torture that can that these people can go through. So when we, you asked early in the show, Elon, why the secrecy and how does this all happen? Well, you just have to look at the at what goes on in these intelligence services and the the tricks that they have in their bag. And that includes, first of all, total secrecy. If they find something else out that can benefit them in any way possible, they will keep that information a secret for their benefit. And if UFOs represent a very advanced form of technology, well, that can be weaponized if we can figure it out. And if if we don't, if we share it with everyone, then everyone will have it, and then we won't have military superiority. We want our our super weapons that can destroy the whole planet, and we want to keep them for ourselves. And by the same token, you have a, a lot of people in these agencies, I imagine, who are just part of the apparatus. They get a paycheck, and they are uh, aligned with this type of thinking about control and manipulation and uh, having no uh, sense of, of uh, morals or ethics regarding the, the lives, destroying the lives of, of people. And that's just, that's just their natural, to them, alignment. Um, you know, when you were describing the Paul Benowitz situation, it seems to me that this guy was just kind of 
truth for truth's sake, uh, just for the greater uh, knowledge and good of, of folks to, to be aware of this stuff and, and really just super unaware of how vulnerable uh, yeah. he, he was to the forces he was uh, conducting business with and far too trusting. And, um, and they shredded him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I guess it's a cautionary tale, um, but really instructive. And also the what makes it very, very difficult to untangle this is how compartmentalized these things are. So all these regular Joes drawing paychecks in these organizations often only see a very tiny, innocuous, nothing to grab your attention part of the whole. So it doesn't occur to them that they're they're involved in anything nefarious or destructive or, you know, let's face it, evil. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that's an issue, too. Well, two things on that. First, uh, I've read a bunch of books on Roswell, and that's a whole other area. I think it's an interesting case. I don't think it's I don't think the official explanations account for it at all. But there are some um, like in the researchers that have looked into Roswell and the witnesses they've found, there are some stories that come from them. People that saying that people did your job in either these military or uh, scientific organizations. And it can, there's one guy, I um, can't remember the company he worked for, but basically like a materials analysis company. So it can be as simple as you just get a package from the Air Force saying, you know, do an analysis on this. And it can be this totally weird material, but you have no idea where it came from. And of course, you have to sign non disclosure agreements and you risk losing your job or worse, anything. So to do this, you look at the material and you report back to them and that's it. And then that's, you know, he, that person who does that study might tell his wife or someone and the story might get around, but who's going to believe a story like that? I mean, there's nothing to it. It's just, okay, so you say you had some weird material that you, that you studied? Well, it could have been anything. It could have been some material created by the, by the Air Force and they were just doing tests on it. Like, I mean... It's it's so compartmentalized that it's it's it, it, even if you have that one piece of the puzzle, it's not enough to convince anyone of anything because it doesn't give you a, the full picture. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, there there seems to be another issue involved with all this, and that's the fact that if we were told as a, as a as humanity, if, if the message were made, um, okay, aliens are here; they have been here. They're abducting a lot of you. It's true. Um, you know, a lot of people would lose their heads. And but a lot of people would probably um, integrate themselves in order to understand, I think, why it's happening and and come to some greater level of understanding about their place in the universe. Uh, instead of you know, I'm it. I'm you know, we're it. Uh, my relationship to the cosmos uh, is limited between me and my perception of what God is. Well, wasn't there a line in the Condon report or very early on a decision made that if this knowledge was let out, it would destroy the structures that kept society together. And that would be the government and religion. Mm -hmm. Religion was accounted for and evaluated as a part of the stabilizing factors of any given society. And if you take away that, you know, you've got an anarchy on your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the aspects that came to mind talking about Benowitz and 
his kind of naivety and gullibility, just not really seeing what he was getting himself into, is, again, something we talk about regularly, and that's just a lack of understanding of human psychology, including pathology like psychopathy. So he just could not see what he was getting himself into and the, the potential for abuse that he was putting himself up against. And that, I think that phenomenon, that unwillingness or just naivety about the evil on this planet carries over into to ufology, mm-hmm. where, first of all, people can't even imagine the reality of a psychopath. They have no idea what that means. And then when you think about the, the possibility or just the nature of whatever this alien intelligence is that has seemingly been interacting with humanity for a lot longer since, than since 1947, then it closes off the possibilities for truly understanding it. Because if you're not even aware of one of these possibilities, and, and that's the case, then... So you've got a guy like Benowitz isn't aware um, um, that his own government is capable of, or the Air Force or whomever. And then you've got the kind of space space brother lovers um, in the contactee, abductee community who are just convinced that everything's fine and dandy and these aliens are just full of love and light and just doing amazing things for humanity and trying to save us from ourselves. And we should just be so grateful that we've got these aliens in our in our lives and around our planet and op- and just welcome them with open arms. Well, on, on the subject, I'm reminded of uh, Stephen Greer and the Disclosure Project. Yeah. I mean, here's a guy who's gotten together dozens of really credible people in, um, you know, in the military, uh, from other fields of, of, careers and jobs and anyway a bunch of credible people would do these uh, conferences and basically uh, state you know what they experienced under oath and uh, you, you listen to them one after the other and uh, you know if you've never had any kind of information before concerning any of this um, phenomena it really makes the subject real uh, it, it brings it all home but then what Stephen Greer does, uh, basically, is he says that all ETs are, are good. At least that's the last bit of information I've read from the man. Mm. And um, he likens abductions to, you know, the experience someone might undergo in a hospital when surgeons are trying to uh, help them in some way. Mm. And, you know, he's another one of these, you know, space brother uh, lovers, <laughs> he you know he has these these groups that go out and try to initiate contact with ETs. Uh, they go out in nature. Um, so you know at at once he's performing this incredible service to people by making the uh, phenomena real, and then he subverts the whole thing. Yeah. By by saying that they're you know <laughs> they're all basically good. Yeah, all you need to counter that, though, and I think this is why Carla Turner's been kind of marginalized. You do not hear a lot about this woman. Um, her first book was Masquerade of Angels, which was... No, Into the Fringe was the first one. Okay, that was the one yeah. about her stuff. Okay. Yeah. The next one, I think, was... Um, Taken. So the, well, anyway, one of the books she wrote was called... <laughs> <laughs> We're having a sequence issue here. 
time interfering with the timeline. I swear that one would publish first. <laughs> anyway, this one was Masquerade of Angels, was her case study of one man called uh, uh, Ted Rice. And he had a lifelong history, in fact, a family history of abductions with his grandmother and, and other issues. Um, and some pretty horrific experiences, but he went through hypnotherapy with her to try and uncover all these screen memories and awful, awful, awful things happened to him. But towards the end of the book, in fact, it's in the last chapter, he says, I want people to know the truth. I want people to know just how deceptive their space brothers really are. I want them to know that the great and wonderful aliens are really like demons who aren't supernatural at all, but are physical like we are. Well, that can be discussed too. Only they have the ability to hide behind superior technology. I want people to stop being so gullible like I was and to start asking the right questions. We can't settle for anything less than the truth from our government and from the so-called aliens themselves. And then he says, if this is truly a battle, then knowledge may be our only weapon. So, so much for the Space Brothers. Mm -hmm. These space brothers remind me of that uh, scene in Independence Day hmm. when you have all the, uh, the the space brother lovers at the top of uh, you know some some building in the city and yeah. they're the first to get fried, blown up. <laughs> well, it just reminds me again of how ahead of his times John Keel was mm -hmm. and how on pretty much every essential issue about the the phenomena in question he was just spot on. Now he wasn't right about everything and he had some a few ideas that I you know, I don't agree with, but on the whole, I, I think he's he pretty much nailed most of it in what was going on. And early, early on. Yeah, too. right in the he. I think he started researching in sometime in the early '60s, maybe '61 or something like that, '60. And he was doing an he was just doing an article for Playboy, and he wanted to just do a a comprehensive article for it. And it became so long; it was never published. He ended up using a lot of that material in Operation Trojan Horse. But in the, just in the first few years of his research, he pretty much had all his main ideas, at least in their, in their germ form, the nucleus that, that grew over the years and in the rest of his books. Mm -hmm. And uh, luckily, I've mentioned, I've mentioned it before, but um, several of his, well, there are four collections now of his articles that he published in various journals and periodicals. And uh, so you can find them on on Amazon, and they're just really great because you can see, you can see his the ideas developing over the years, and just the sheer amount of material and research, and just how how sharp the guy was, and how clearly he could see what was going on, and the conclusions that he could come to that just made all all the data make sense. Mm -hmm. Well, he was kind of the first to postulate that they're not from somewhere. Yeah, that this these beings are actually all around us and they simply step into our level and step out again. They don't have to travel from anywhere. They're already here. And uh, that sort of ran counter to the early researchers who were like, oh no, they're a spaceship, they can travel at light speed, they're from here or there or anywhere. And that was not a popular theory at the time. And I think he took some black for it too. He also has a well. There's there's a newer book out that's a compilation of you know a lot of uh, those articles and and journals and I think um, there might be some excerpts from from his uh, prior books too. It's called a uh, 
flying saucer to the center of the earth. The center of your mind. Of your mind. <laughs> There's also searching for the string and a couple other ones. Well, on the subject of Carla Turner and, and that last bit um, that uh, that Tim Rice says at the end of her book, Masquerade of Angels, I think we have another very interesting uh, um, soundbite from Carla Turner. She, um, in addition to writing those three books, uh, in the early 90s, she visited um, conventions and uh, and met and spoke with a lot of people on her experiences and what she was finding out from uh, from discussing abductions with a lot of other people. Um, so we have a a part here from uh, the Vegas Third Annual International UFO Congress in 1993. And she attended that with her husband, uh, who was also her, her husband, and her son uh, went to an ordeal for for years um, being abducted. And it it wasn't only uh, waking up knowing something was very wrong and having these traumatic uh, experiences and these sensings of, of things that had happened to them, but uh, it also had a physical component. Um, you know, she noticed... Uh, scoot marks and scrapings and rashes and, and sicknesses uh, and all sorts of other things. Um, so with that, I think we'll listen for a few minutes to her speaking at this, uh, this UFO Congress. And then as I talked about last night, I had the contact in May where I had the Jacob and Esau scenario played out. This was the only time since 1980 that I've had a contact in which I was not to my knowledge, abducted. I was given a message, a warning about the deception being used in the, in the manipulation genetically of the race to change our species into something more useful for these beings' purposes than what we currently are. Apparently, whatever they did to us in the beginning to make us useful has petered out, and they need to do some more messing with us, and I was given a scenario based on a biblical story to warn me about the deceptions being used to do this, but I was not, as far as I can ascertain, abducted, nor was I physically touched, and for that I am profoundly grateful. It may have been then from the good side that sometimes does seem to give us some help and some information, which I had been praying for very deeply for about a year, and I appreciated having the difference. In my mind, I have used the rule of thumb till I know better. Good things don't abduct. We don't allow humans to abduct us. We call it a criminal offense because it is on every book, I think, of the laws in this country, a criminal offense to do so. And I don't think that anything has the right to break those moral laws against us. I wouldn't accept it from you and I won't accept it from them, so I was very grateful to have an encounter from a force other than the abducting poking prob probing type that gave me information I had been asking for. I think we need to pay attention, but even with that, to be cautious, to be skeptical, and to take nothing at face value. The Bible tells us to test and try the spirits. It doesn't say, believe every word they tell you. And I try to use that as my rule of thumb. More importantly, 
important than what is, I mean, I'm talking about personal experiences here, but part of my personal experiences are the research I do with other abductee cases and other people who are wishing to make sense of theirs. And I'm very fortunate to be contacted by some extraordinary people whose events and experiences I learn from. I hope I'm helping them as well, but I know I certainly benefit from it. And there's where the focus of my personal work is right now, with especially right Right this moment, nine extraordinary women around this country whose cases make ours look like a Sunday school picnic as far as intensity and information. I, I, will, I do have a publisher for this book. It should be out late next year with any luck on my part of getting it all together. And I hope you'll have a look at because the things we went through are so illuminated by what these people have gone through that we've learned reams from dealing with these parallel events. Much new information has come out on those that shed light on, for instance, the military abduction my husband had. We have four of the cases of these nine women who've had intense military intervention and activity in their experiences, so we're working to put this material together for all of us to learn from. We've also begun to get a lot of extremely important and precise information on the nature and use of the implants that people are having, and they trade them out. You don't get one in the beginning and they leave it forever. They trade them out, they put them in different places, they have different functions, and some of it's extraordinarily important for us to start understanding and trying to deal with. And I hope that the information I've gathered from these people in my personal research will be available to all of you as soon as possible. The good news I want to share with you in our own case and with some of these others is that something seems to be changing. It's not SOP anymore. Standard operating procedure is shifting. Not only does there seem to be a clear sense of increased activity on the parts of the aliens, but there seems to be an increased experience on the part of the abductees to be resistant, to be more empowered, and to begin to see through the illusions that the, that the deceptive ETs very, very often use to manipulate us. And for this, I am very hopeful and very joyous. We are having case after case now in the midst of an encounter where an illusion is being offered or thrust upon the person and they're not buying it. They're seeing through it and they're calling the bluff and it seems to be making a lot of difference. I am very uh, moved by and, and heartened by one of these nine women who will be in the book. I, she goes by Anita in the book who has never had hypnosis. Nobody's planted anything in this woman's mind. We have not even met face-to-face. -face. We've done all our research through correspondence, phone calls, and family uh, questioning and investigation on the surface level, the conscious level. Throughout her life, her family has had many of these experiences. And she was reminding me the other day of how, like I said, we're beginning to see through the illusions. She said, you know, the, the little white ones, what they call the gray ones, I guess. She says, I got the distinct sense they could care less about us. They have a job to do, and, and they do it as best they can, and we're more or less just the project. She says, they don't tend to try to make us feel very good one way or the other about it. But she said, the tan ones, now they're different. She says, they, they really take a great deal of effort to try to convince us of how much they love us says, oh, they can bombard us with love. I mean, shower us with love and get inside us and make us love them back and feel this kinship and bond with them and merge with us and you are I and I am you and we're all one. And she said, the last time they did with this with me, I was standing there and one of the ten ones was just beaming this love into me. And she said, I felt so bad for him. I had to reach out and pat him on the face and say, too bad it's not real. 
seeing through the illusions is the big step forward that people are making one at a time, and I'm very, very hopeful that we're going to be developing a resistance technique, and it's going to have to happen one at a time. There you have Carla Turner talking about seeing through the deception and uh, empowering ourselves to um, you know, recognize what all this activity is for what it is. And uh, I think that's kind of part of the point that, that's trying to be made here. If you accept that uh, there is a, a UFO reality, even though it's complex and difficult to understand. Um, if you haven't, do read her books. Mm-hmm. Um, Into the Fringe, uh, her first book describes some harrowing experiences she's had, uh, as I said before, with her husband and her son and, and just trying to come to terms with what was occurring when there was not so much information or, or means of support for people at the time. So, you know, the, the impetus to go out and speak at these uh, UFO conferences really came of her own um, difficult times and wanting to help others and understand things further. And uh, she suffered a lot of harassment um, probably at the hands of, of U.S. Uh, military and intelligence agencies as well. And, um, you know, you can just tell by the way she's speaking that she was a sincere and really coherent and clear uh, voice for uh, true disclosure on the subject. Uh, sadly, uh, she passed away in 1996 due to an aggressive form of cancer. Uh, so we we don't have her anymore, but we do have her books and her videos and her legacy. All of them are collected. If you uh, want to Google her, you can go to CarlaTurner.org. Uh, her page is a subset of another website, but if you go to look at the sidebar on the homepage, it'll say Carla Turner. A gentleman named uh, Jeff Polachek has collected all her information, all her videos, all her radio interviews, all her, uh, she ran some online chat classes. Uh, so all of that is available. He encourages you to download them, to you know keep them in your archives. And there's also a link. Her books are back in print. You can get them from Create Space, and that'll help support her family. That'll be good. Just CarlaTurner.org. It's a wealth of information. I really encourage you to go and watch the videos and read her stuff. She was brilliant. Now she um, her her story. Is is uh, a really interesting one. I, it's been a number number of years since uh, I've read her books, um, but I believe it was in her first one where she talked about um, was it uh, that she had a client who had a, an experience with a UFO and she started digging into it. Um, well, yeah, she she wasn't a paid hypnotherapist, but um, she worked with people and put them together with other. Well, I was I was thinking about her very her first experience because um, I remember when she was she hadn't she hadn't had an actual UFO experience, but she started digging into the topic, mm-hmm. and that's when things seemed to open up in a sense. And then you know she would be abducted and the rest of her family. Um, but getting back to uh, some of the points that she brought up uh, in the talk that we just listened to. Um, one of the points that we were kind of discussing earlier was, you know, if um, the 
these beings have some capacity to you know influence our minds and our interpretation of uh, what we experience and even you know it's not just these memories that might be inserted but there's this feeling that you know people can have uh, that really bind them you know to this narrative well we're so vulnerable through our biochemistry you know, we have to yeah. up up the oxytocin and dopamine and hey well that and friends. that's yeah that's kind of what i wanted to get into is that you know this, this is um while this issue is you know that carla turner is talking about is in terms of uh, these uh, abductions, but it can be applied to you know so many things that you know our our emotions really like, you know can be you know, very distorted and um, can really mask uh, our ability to see reality as it is. Um, and you know, case in point was the 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 issue that she brought up when she first started to talk, which was about the. Um, just what abduction is and how uh, we don't accept uh, abduction, like a, a person abducting another person as, you know, something good. Yet, you know, there's these abductees who say, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's kind of a, a Stockholm syndrome type yeah, thing. Exactly. It's a good description. Exactly. And uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say that's that uh, I can't remember who wrote the, uh, I think it was Topper wrote the analysis of Whitley Stryber. And basically said he's uh, one one giant case of Stockholm syndrome that he would accept horrendous treatment because he had somehow twisted his mind around to accept this as for his own good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what's the alternative to 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 accept yourself that you have absolutely no power? Mm-hmm. And that's a you know, yeah. it's not necessarily true, but that's where that's where the mind will go. Mm-hmm. And from the talk, what struck me was the. The contrast between the just complete violation of an abduction experience and then the love bomb. Now, because if you just think about that for a minute, here's this being. Let's even just let's call it another person. Let's let's like take it down to to like this level of reality, like a human abduction. So let's say you're abducted by a by another human, taken somewhere against your will, and then that person somehow or other, just looks into your eyes and just evokes this immense feeling of love in you. Now, that is it's a positive experience. It feels good. But the, on the same level, it's, a total, it's still a total violation. That's, it's a, an anti-human act to, to do something like that. It's, it's so vi- violating. I mean, I, you'd think that that experience of love should be should come from a lot more than that, from a, a relationship, from knowing other people. From that should be something that a close group of friends or a, a personal or a, a romantic relationship has. It's not something that can just be foisted on you. It's it's it brings to mind just being a lab rat or a lab mouse, where you can be treated horribly, the or you can be shot full of opium or <laughs> morphine. It's, exactly, you've been yeah. drugged. Well, well, that kind of brings us back to that point you were making before, Harrison, where you were um, discussing our limited understanding paths. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in romantic relationships, there are people who are in love with psychopaths, mm-hmm. uh, who psychopaths, due to their charisma, cunning, kinds of positive things of being loved and, and, and experiencing affection. 
and uh, it, it takes some people a very long time uh, to realize that all of those feelings are a lie mm -hmm. and that they're basically being conned in, in the deepest sense. Uh, now, getting back to Turner for a moment, um, something else she says, and I think this is in Pagan, um, is that uh, after a while, she's learned that the appropriate response to uh, an encounter or an abduction experience is, is F you. Uh, you know, that giving into the fear of the situation is actually what feeds them on some level. Uh, and there have been cases discussed where uh, people um, in the throes of abduction have have been aware of literally being drained of their energy um, and and fear only compounds and it's it's of a certain uh, to use a nice word vibration uh, it, it it's you know if if normal people feed on the love and affection and understanding and empathy of of others in their family and their friends uh, it can be said that these beings feed on something of a completely different nature um, so, uh, you know, you don't have to respond with fear, uh, um, but I think it certainly helps to make all of, uh, this information, um, known to yourself, uh, that you assimilate it in a way that, uh, a proper response can be, um, initiated or, or used in such a situation. And that goes for, that goes for people who are conning you as well. Yeah, these uh, there there is this really stark um, comparison between you know what was happening with uh, these this, this uh, abduction phenomenon and psychopaths as we were talking about earlier, and you know with a relationship and with the psychopath, there's uh, Sandra Brown uh, goes into the intensity of of you know the experience, and it is like this love bomb. Uh, thing and and that is then contrasted with this you know total abuse and it's this intensity and back and forth that forms these trauma bonds um, that you can kind of see in in these uh, uh, space brother lover mm -hmm. types. Uh, I can't remember which book, but of her eight women, uh, she said the ones that were best able to resist responded with anger. Mm -hmm. responded with defense, with, no, you can't do this to me, you have no right. And that seems to be a confusing emotion to be confronted with. Uh, they're used to fear, they're used to submission, they're used to whatever, but if you stand your ground, at least, you know, you may not be able to, to you know, stop it, but you can at least go down fighting, and it makes their lives and their work a lot more difficult. It's all for that. Well, before the clip, Elon, you mentioned the, the physical aspects, and there was also the quote from Ted Rice that Carolyn read, um, where he's saying that these are, they're like demons, but they're totally physical. They just cloak themselves or something. Well, I think that's an interesting thing to look at, the, the physical nature of these and what the implication of these physical effects are, because um, like you mentioned, there can be scoop marks, scars, the the implant phenomena and some 
physical, and even with the UFOs, these objects look physical. They leave physical traces. They might leave actual physical material or indentation or grass or just any number of, of other physical effects. Now, this is when the there's kind of a, a contrast between the totally nuts researchers who think this is just uh, another species from another planet that's come over here and you know they flew their their spaceships over here and they're just hiding out and flying around and that's the the nature of it then there's the kind of totally um hallucinatory aspect now this is pretty much the the direction keel goes in he he pretty much calls all these encounters hallucinations now but that's not to say that there's no reality behind them. He, he sees it as a primarily mental effect, where there is a there is a some kind of agent causing this this response in a person. But what you're seeing is not what you think you're seeing. Now I think there might, you know, maybe there's a or maybe there's a middle ground between these two positions that it's it's somewhat somewhat physical and somewhat not physical. And this is where I think. <clears throat> We get in again, bring in the aspect of parapsychology or the paranormal, where there seems to be a strange physicality about so-called paranormal things. And so, when you look at things like seances, where you get apports, which are materials that that can appear spontaneously and basically from creations or materializations, where something that doesn't exist on the planet as we know it will materialize, and you often see these in physical with uh, physical medium phenomena like where um, <clears throat> a materialization of some kind of spirit or whatever where, where you'll get this sort of ectoplasmic phenomenon and it can take the shapes of of body parts or hands or objects or faces or entire, in some cases, entire people. Like it looks like a, a person just walking around. And again, these, these were amply documented in the early years of of the psychical research, as it was called then. But when you look at that, you say, okay, well, there's this, there's this, there's just this weird thing about that where there seems to be this physical aspect, but on the other hand, it's, it's like, it's not physical. It's, and I think when you, I, I, well, I don't think we have the tools really to totally understand what's going on at this point. We should le- keep an open mind that we just don't understand what is possible and what isn't possible. Um, in this in this universe, don't they say that any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic? Yeah. yeah. And so, looking at these phenomena, I don't think it's it's easy to say that it's like Ted Rice that it's a totally physical thing because there there's evidence that it isn't, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's totally mental because there's evidence that it's physical. And this is where I think that even if we can't totally explain it, the parapsychology at least offers some um, some other forms of evidence that can give us hints about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so just as a one example of how to look at things, if you just think about hypnosis and what we actually know or don't know about hypnosis and what the possible limits of hypnosis are, just the idea of having a hypnotically suggested blister appear on your on your skin strikes me as remarkable. Mm-hmm. Now, so what can be going on to convince your the skin on your arm that it's being burned when it isn't? And I think that if you look at this question deeply enough, that it, it, what it really comes down to is some fundamental aspects of what the universe is really like, like at the base level, the the absolute 
um, just the, the nature of reality, what is or isn't possible. And I don't know, but at this point, the way I kind of see it is that that hypnosis is kind of, it's, it's this interesting because, um, now, and, and this can have applications to UFOs too, and I'll get to that, is like what's going on with, let's say, a hypnotically induced blister or something like that or a burn mark or, or whatever. It's almost as if something or you yourself or the, the hypnotist is convincing the cells in your arm that it is experiencing some kind of causal thing. Yeah. Something, yeah, something is happening to it. So I, So those cells exhibit the response as if it were to receive that burn mark. Now, so what does that say about that, those cells and what's going on when something really is burning you? Mm-hmm. So it really gets down to the nature of causality in general. How does one thing cause another thing? And the, the only thing I can think about it is in the only way I can look at it at this point, at least with my limited mind, is that there is, um, that like, it, it comes down to the way that, that parasites are finding PK or ESP or ESP, it's a transfer of information. So in causality, when, when one thing causes another, it's like there's the one thing and it is somehow tra- sending a message, sending information to the other thing. And that, that other thing that's received sees the information and sees information sent to me. And so based on just whatever cosmic laws there are and how, uh, how to respond to these bits of information, I'm going to respond to that information accordingly. I'm going, to, I'm going to follow the rules. But it's like this process somehow gets disrupted in something like hypnosis where the skin cells receive an, an, an information source, but it's not coming from... It's not coming from... Facsimile, it's a... Uh, it's kind of from your own mind, like the hypnosis you, opens you up where your your mind or your brain is both the sender... And, mm-hmm. and your body, it can be the, the receiver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and not necessarily yourself, though, because it can be someone else sending that message. Yeah, but someone can suggest to you uh, while you're in a hypnotic trance that, you know, uh, and with all the supporting evidence, that seems to be, you know, if say you have a cigarette burn, you would have to have, say, the sound of a lighter lighting a cigarette, the smell of it, and then the suggestion, because the brain will accept, oh, there's a cigarette with the, oh, I accidentally touched you. Does it hurt? And the brain will, having been given all these cues, send the message to the cells to react as if it had been hurt. You know? I think it goes even deeper than just the brain. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we're working with. Yeah, but yeah that, 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 that information at whatever level, and it's obviously a much deeper level, is being conveyed, even though it is technically false information. It mm-hmm. still has an effect. Yeah, and that's the scary that, thing. Yes. Because now this scary. <laughs> on Behind the Headlines last year or so, they interviewed... Uh, Stephen Browdy, who's a parapsychologist philosopher, and one of the good points that I think he makes for why people reject the reality of parapsychology is just out of fear. Because if you accept that a person can influence a random number number generator to just, just a tiny bit, to just get a few more zeros than ones, then what are the possible, imp- possible implications of just that tiny bit of influence? If you can just you know, just affect a tiny little bit of influence on someone's artery mm-hmm. uh, or one of their arteries in yeah. their brain or in their heart, you can you can kill them. Yeah. Now, so to to accept that that ESP and PK are, are real is to is to to go back to our pagan beginnings when we all kinds of you know curses and 
and um, the evil eye. Yeah, and and people don't want to believe that that stuff is real. It's scary, and not only no, not only is it scary, it's it's below us, right? We're past that. We're rational. That's not rationalized. The enlightenment. But but this stuff is real, and that that's scary. So when you carry over those implications from parapsychology into ufology, then it kind of expands the playing field. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, if you look at ESP and PK, well, what really are they? Well, like I said before, it's like a transfer of information. And this is, so te- telepathy is basically you've got one mind receiving information from another source, whether another person um, or it could be or it could be from a physical object. So you go, you know, you, you've got your remote viewers who, who view these physical objects and get information from them and can report that information. So it's like one object is somehow sending this information non-locally, not by any physical means that we know of, to a receiver. And PK is just the reverse process where you yourself are sending the influence to a, to a receiver. So it's, it seems like PK and ESP are just two sides of the same coin of, of this paranormal influence. So a PK influence could be to either inject a thought into someone else's mind or an image or, a, or, or some, some kind of physical effect, like if you think about levitation or just squeezing that artery, there, there are these immense possibilities that just kind of boggle the mind to think about the extent to which these phenomena can have their effect in the world. So you take that to, to UFOs and aliens. Well, if you look at the animal world, you see that animals don't talk. They don't have language like we do, but they've got. You know, some, but they communicate in certain ways. The dogs think they're different signals that plants send off as information, for example. Now, so it's like these. They've got these kind of incipient that kind of can come to fruition or come to can kind of become something more than that in, for example, humans. Like we have this ability for speech that's pretty remarkable compared to the animal world. Well, if we look at our ESP and PK abilities, they're not very extensive. Now, they can be. They can be totally mind-boggling, but everyday life, it's not like we're going around like having telepathy conversations with everyone around us. And Reminding somebody to get toilet paper when they're at the grocery store or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or teleporting to, to work or, or uh, levitating. And so, but, but, if you, but if you look at the evidence of what, has been pos- what is possible and what has been observed, and you think about, well, what would happen if a human, for example, um, had control of all these abilities. Now, that would be a, a, a frightening thing. It might be pretty cool, and you can make a cool movie about it, or a TV show. But imagine those capabilities in the hands of someone like Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. And then imagine if all these so-called aliens resemble Dick Cheney more than they represent Gandhi. And what that might mean and what the possibilities are, and just the the extent of the influence. And then, like we were saying before, adding the technology element. If there is a super, it's like this super technology going on, how might that interact and affect the, how these things are going on? And that's where we get into just the, the possibilities for heinous examples of mind control and the injection of these false ideas or emotions or whatever into a person's mind to totally control them in certain ways. 
or the things that they can do to do to bodies. So even scoop marks or anything like that, yeah, they're physical, but I, that, but I, I don't think that um, that you can say definitively that there must be a physical source for them because I mean they could be hypnotically or self-hypnotically induced. That's it's a possibility. So it may even be that the, that that a lot of these physical phenomena are actually not as physical as we think. That they, these the effects are physical, but what's the source for them? We still don't know with any kind of certainty. Well, so several of these abductions, especially in Taken, where this is case study of these nine women, uh, they would often describe a double that their body would be left behind, but there would be a matching body that was examined. And whatever was done to that double, that mm-hmm. extra one, would show up on their body when they were returned. So that means that whatever pattern, whatever mind, I don't know, I can't, the word I'm thinking of is whatever mind pattern, whatever pattern, and I'll use the word etherical, mm-hmm. uh, that is placed into this double carries back the traumas, the the procedure, the whatever, and it it is reproduced in the body they occupy here. I mean, I, now we're getting really out on the edge of things, but that's what these women are reporting, and more than one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? It just that could be what's going on. <laughs> We've got to be open to these possibilities. Absolutely. Um, one other thing, or do you want? To... Well, no, I just think that's a, a a very useful way of looking at it, because you know, if in, information can, is a non-physical thing, uh, but has uh, physical ramifications, um, you know, the idea that knowledge being information has substance and adding substance to yourself in the form of knowledge uh, can form protection. Um, So, uh, you know, I think insofar as we can um, accrete more knowledge uh, or information, um, it it acts in ways that we may not even be conscious of. Uh, and, And just another way to think about why it's important to think about these things. Well, if it only for the lessening somewhat the sense of overwhelm, if you're confronted with a situation and you've already got some kind of mental pattern about it and an accurate mental pattern, then you are in a better place to, to counter it. And knowledge will protect you then, just as Ted Rice said and many others. Well, these uh, these descriptions that these women gave and uh, along with the uh, what Harrison was talking about you know, with the disinformation field and uh, solubility, you know, at if we take it to the next levels and can apply them to you know, these beings, you know, it makes you wonder: is all they're doing kind of, you know, is, is their is their main focus on just abducting, you know, however many people each year? What's or, the point? Yeah, is it what's the point, and is there a larger uh, thing going on, you know. Yeah, we're going to have to have another show. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not just tracking migration patterns. You know, if you want yeah. to go as above, so below. I mean, we we tag bears, and somebody's tagging us. The the, the short answer is there is probably an end game, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. And um, yeah, <laughs> that that probably uh, we'll need another show because we're coming close to the end of our show. Um, did you want to bring up 
No, I think we'll have to go on that note. Yeah. Okay. Was, was there any, anything else you wanted to just mention? Educate yourself. Even if you never in your life see anything kind of hinky, it doesn't hurt to know about it. It does not hurt. You know? Well, the, the curiosity, you know, about uh, these things, it just um, being able to use that and apply to information that we, you know, may dismiss, you know, there is something about that curiosity and uh, there can be, you know, some of the stuff can be, you know, terrifying or um, I remember when I was reading some of the material, I'd be like, Shivering at the, by my window at night, and it's like you know, yeah. Um, but now we're laughing about it. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, it, the the curiosity is just like it. You know, it can be a driver for uh, learning all sorts of things. And and like as we're doing the show, you know, we're talking about this phenomenon, but it applies to many different uh, things about that we can uh, understand the world uh, too. So. It's, so, yeah, I'd also encourage everybody to really dig into it. Well, I just want to add, you know, when when information came real to me, I guess, on a visceral level, I was depressed for months. Uh, I mean, it's it's really, and it took a long time to process. Uh, so I think shivering, it seems to me, would, would be, you know, or depression, uh, kind of a, a normal response to this type of information if, if you're really grokking what it means. Um and on on that note, unless you want to add something, I just want to add one thing on that point that I was thinking about it earlier in the show, but didn't get around to saying it. The just that experience that you related, Shane, about kind of being scared. If you think about, like when I was a kid, aliens terrified me. It was scary. I watched the the movie um, based on that famous UFO case, uh, Fire in the Sky. Was the name of the movie? Mm-hmm. It was. Totally, it scared the crap out of me. I watched it again like just several years ago, and it was—I was like, I was scared of—I was scared of this. I know I was—I was young, but but you 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 read the cases, and people people tend to be afraid of aliens. They have nightmares. It's a scary thing. Do you hear about people having nightmares about fluffy angels? Like, uh, it's it's not a total uh, totally good analogy, but but just the fact that. For kids, for example, in in most cases, I think it should be a hint of something, and, and that this is a uh, a violating phenomenon and not doesn't have our best interests at heart. Yeah, your gut reaction is this is not good. And it's only after the, the kind of love bombs and the the those trauma bonds that form that you get the the kids or the adults who might think that these are their new friends and and this is all great, but. But in, you know, abductions are scary, and X Files was scary. And <laughs> well, I, I saw fire, nightmare, fire in the sky a few years ago, and it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, on that note, um, thanks for listening in, everybody. Uh, we hope it was a good show for you. Um, just wanted to remind you that tomorrow is the behind the headlines show. Uh, Joe and Neil are doing a fantastic interview um, with James and Joanne Moriarty. It's called The Truth About Libya. I mean, this story uh, should give us nightmares. Um, And I feel it's like one of the more uh, underreported ones, um, how NATO and the West completely destroyed Libya uh, a few years ago 
in 2011. And uh, and don't forget the Health and Wellness Show next Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Standard Time. And I want to thank everybody here today for a, a lovely conversation. Yeah, it was fun. I think maybe next week we'll continue on, unless we have something else. But we'll come back. We'll come back to this for sure and complete our discussion. So Sounds thanks, good. thanks everyone. Take care. Thanks, Bye.